All right, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew in a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is really Matthew 5 through 7. It's, it's all part of one discourse, Jesus giving a sermon, and you guessed it, he's on a mountain. And uh, we get to kind of start to pick that apart. And we're going to look at Matthew 6, starting in verse 25 today. And before we, before we read, and maybe while you're getting there, I'll tell you there is a connection between what we talked about last week, the passage right before this, and what we're talking about today. Last week we saw Jesus, you know, urge us not to serve two masters. And we saw that there was actually a progression of the way that our hearts go, is that the things that we treasure become the things that we love, and what we love then become the things that lead us, what we look at and lead us, and the things that we are led by then oftentimes become our masters. And what Jesus is going to real, reveal for us here is that when our masters become things that oftentimes disappoint us, what it leads to is anxiety, worry. So join me, if you will, uh, and follow along Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at how the birds of the air, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, you have given us your word because you love us, because you want us to know you. Will you open our hearts to it today? Will you soften us and open our ears that we may hear what you have to say and that we might see Jesus more clearly so that we might love him more fully and follow him more perfectly? We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you do this in us today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, if you were here last week, you got to celebrate with us in the wonderful baptism of Ruth Armstrong. Uh, I told the Armstrongs that night, Saturday night, right before this baptism, I had uh, the strangest dream. So I actually dreamt that I was baptizing, that we had a baptism, baptism at church, and it wasn't Ruth, it was, it was actually the son of a, a friend of mine. Uh, and in this baptism, we're in the middle of the service, and right before I was supposed to baptize this kid, uh, I forgot everything. Like, I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't know what the questions were. I, like, didn't have the questions to the parents or the questions to the congregation. I had forgotten to print them out. I didn't have them in front of me. And, and I, I kind of freaked out. And in fact, <laughs> I, think in the, I think in the dream I actually left the worship service and went home and printed out my stuff 
and came back, but it somehow took me so long that when I got back to church, everybody was gone. There was like a few families left and people were literally were like putting up chairs. But I was so, uh, I was so determined to baptize this kid that I had, our, I had our little bowl for baptizing. I'd found them, they were still there, and I looked down and I was ready to baptize this young boy and there's the bowl on the ground and the bowl had melted. And it was just like in this puddle of mud and water on the ground, which I think I used still to baptize this kid with some mud. It was, it was, not, a, it was not a good ending. Um, and I woke up thinking, man, I, I must be so anxious about what's about to happen. In my dream, there were not children hiding underneath the communion table, but, uh, but I must have been anxious about something. And our dreams often reveal that to us, don't they? There's something going on kind of in my heart under the surface, in my subconscious, that I'm worried about, and that anxiety is kind of coming out in my dreams. Anxiety is, is really kind of the default stance in our culture in many ways. In fact, if you, if you read the research about what's happening, especially with teens and college students, Anxiety has really taken over for depression as the number one reason why, uh, why college students especially are seeking counseling these days. Uh, in fact, something, something up to 60% of students. Uh, the, the Google search for the word anxiety has doubled in the last five years. It's something that is big in our culture. And a lot of times, uh, researchers and psychologists will tell you that the reason why especially it's so high amongst teens, amongst high schoolers especially, is that we, and by we I mean their parents and the culture, have heaped on them so many expectations about performing, about being perfect, about getting into the right college, that they are so burdened with expectation that the only thing left is for them to feel extremely anxious about it. And the questions are really, what else can I do? What other AP class can I take? What other activity can I be in so that I get into the perfect college so that my life looks perfect? And of course, when we heap expectations on ourselves or our children or our world, we end typically with anxiety. And then there's also things like FOMO. You know, FOMO is the fear of missing out. It's that, you know, sometimes exciting but mostly terrifying thought that somebody else is doing something really fun and you're not doing it. And the fact that we are such a connected world makes FOMO a lot worse these days, right? It used to be that we could just go and eat at Chipotle and everything was fine. But now, as you're eating at Chipotle, you can pick up your phone and see that your friends are actually eating at Myron's and you're not, right? And so then there's that, well, man, why am I here and they're there? FOMO, I think, typically even hits some harder than others. It, it hits singles really hard. It hits single women especially hard because oftentimes you're going to pull up your you know, Instagram or Facebook feed and you're going to look at your friends who are your age who are showing all of the pictures of their beautiful little children and their husbands and their houses. And immediately you feel like I'm doing something wrong because that's not me. That fear of missing out creates anxiety in us. There's also separation anxiety. Uh, we had a dog that had separation anxiety all the time, which means you, you couldn't really ever leave him or else he'd tear things up. But people get separation anxiety too. And the thing is, we don't get separation anxiety as much from separation from other people as we do from, you guessed it, our phones. 
a study at the University of Missouri recently, took a bunch of college students and they, they put them in these cubicles and they said, okay, we're going to study you based on how you can perform these tasks like doing a word search puzzle or that sort of thing. But the real test started about 30 minutes later when they said, they, somebody came in and said, you know, for whatever reason, the phones seem to be interfering kind of with our devices, so we're going to have to take your phone and we're going to put it just a little further away from you, like in the next cubicle. So they took everybody's phones, they put them in the next cubicle where they couldn't get them, <laughs> and then this is really cruel, they started calling them. And so they're sitting in here taking this test, trying to do a word search or whatever, and their phones are ringing and they can't get to their phone. And of course, you know the outcome. All of their abilities plummeted and their anxiety skyrocketed. Their heart rate started to increase, their blood pressure increased. They were anxious because they weren't able to get to their phones. When we can't get our stuff, we get anxious, don't we? There's a, a guy named Elaine Debuton. He's a, an author and a, a philosopher. He's written a book called Status Anxiety. And his whole point in this book is, you know, the, the lie that oftentimes parents tell their children that you can be anybody you want to be. You can do anything in this world. You can do whatever you want. When kids finally grow up and they realize that that's not always true, it creates anxiety. We have status anxiety when we think that we should be at a different status than we are. Because of all of these things, our culture and individuals are filled oftentimes with anxiety. We are an anxious and worrisome culture. Why is that? Why are we anxious people? Why do we worry all the time? Why do I worry about how my kids are going to turn out? Why do I worry about what the stock market is going to do tomorrow? Why do I worry about what kind of job I'm going to have or if people are going to like me tomorrow or if everything is going to turn out well? Why am I filled with worry? And really, even more importantly, what's the solution? And that's really what we're going to dive into today. Because what Jesus lays out for us here is that the long-term fix for our deep anxieties is to actually move our trust from those things that are always going to disappoint us and to move them into the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. That is the long-term cure that Jesus gives for anxiety, is to relocate our trust from the things that disappoint us and create anxiety in us to the God and loving Heavenly Father that we have who never disappoints and always fulfills His promises. Now, before we dive into this, I want to just give a couple of, a couple of quick words, some things for us to to realize, and we're not going to talk a whole lot about this, but I want to make sure that I'm really clear on this. First is this, is that to be nervous about something is not in and of itself a sin. Eric Abrahamson told me the other day that when he and Sherry did premarital counseling, their pastor said, are you nervous about being married? And they, married? And they said, yeah, a little nervous. And he said, well, you need to repent of that. I think that's a little far. It's not sinful to be nervous about speaking in front of people. It's not sinful to be afraid of things. There are things that are worth being afraid of. So that's the first thing. Every, every time you are nervous or worrisome or a little anxious, I'm not saying that, hey, that's some deep, dark sin and the Lord hates you for it, okay? That's definitely not the case. The second is this, is that when we talk about anxiety, there is a lot of nuance that we need to talk about. And so we're going to talk about really the, the long-term cure for the deep heart-level anxiety that we oftentimes deal with 
But friends, it is the case that we are whole people. God has made us spiritual, physical, mental people. And so there is both a spiritual aspect and a chemical aspect to anxiety. And so if you think, if I have, you know, a panic attack, maybe that just means that Jesus doesn't love me very much or it means that I don't love Jesus enough. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, the the quick fix is not what we're going to talk about today. In fact, oftentimes for those who deal with a chronic anxiety or deal with debilitating anxiety, you're going to need professional help. Many of you have already dealt with this, and you know that talking to a professional counselor or oftentimes taking the appropriate medication can be a very helpful thing in dealing with anxiety. I don't think that what Jesus says here in this passage is incompatible with that. So please keep that in mind, is that Jesus has made us, God has made us as whole people. And we're going to deal with that in a holistic way. But the third thing is also really important to keep in mind is that Jesus loves to move toward brokenness. The fact that you have an anxious heart, the fact that you worry about the wrong things does not keep him away from you. In fact, the opposite is true. His heart is drawn to that. So keep that in mind as we talk today. And here's the way we're going to kind of lay it out is we're going to talk about two sides of this coin of anxiety. Talk about first kind of negative aspect. What are the things that the Lord is actually calling us to move away from that create anxiety in us? And then what is he calling us to move toward? All right, so the first, the negative. What is he calling us to move away from? Well, before we kind of dive into that, let's talk about really what what anxiety is. Uh, There was a few years ago where, where my dad got a little perturbed at me. And, uh, and I didn't really know why, but he was kind of just a little short. He was pouting, really. And I uh, finally said, Dad, what, what's, like, what's wrong? Like, what did I do? What, what happened? He's, and he finally came out, you know, he's like, well, I mean, I've called you like four times, and you haven't called me back. And I thought, you haven't called me? Really? And he said, yeah, I called him. He called me over, and he said, let's look at my phone, and here's his phone, and it's got my name there, like outgoing calls four times. And I pick up my phone, and I look at it, and I got nothing. I said, Dad, I, I've never received a call from you. And then it kind of dawned on me, Dad, let me see your phone. Let me see what number you're calling there. And my dad had this number in his phone for some reason that I hadn't had for like 10 years. So some poor guy in Austin was getting some, you know, pretty angry voicemails from someone else's father. But I wasn't getting them at all. And the point is, it's not my dad's desire that was wrong. It's what he placed his trust in. He placed his trust in the wrong phone number and everything broke down. He wanted to call me. He was happy to call me. He tried to call me. He put forth a lot of effort for it. But the thing that he had placed his trust in was the wrong thing. And that's really the heart of what we're talking about when we talk about anxiety. It's what do we trust? How are we called to move our trust away from the idols of our hearts that are going to always disappoint us? In fact, those things can break down into some basic categories for us. I think one of the things that's the biggest for me, maybe for some of you, is my need to know. That's one of the things I oftentimes put my trust in. My need to know what's going on and what's going to happen next. Isn't it amazing that we're never, we're never anxious about stuff that's already happened? Because it's already happened. There's nothing we can do about it. Our anxiety always comes from the stuff that might happen that's yet to happen, that I'm anxious may or may not happen. If you're a parent, my guess is that a lot of this revolves around your children. How are they going to turn out? 
How are they going to be? Are they going to get bullied at school? Are they going to excel? Are they going to be first string on the team? Are they going to get left out? Are they going to have friends? Are they going to feel empowered? Is everything going to go well? And oftentimes when that question begins to be the dominant question in our lives, not only does our anxiety rise, but guess what? The anxiety of our children starts to rise too. You know the term helicopter parents? It's the parents who just hover around their kids all the time, kind of making sure everything is always good. Nobody's ever going to hurt them. No one's going to touch them. No one's going to be around them. Everything's, they're always going to succeed. They never let their children fight any of their own battles. They always do it for them. Kind of like taking a toddler who's learning to walk and always catching them whenever they fall. Well, if that child never learns how to fall, they actually never learn how to walk either. And so oftentimes our outsized and over-functioning anxiety about how our children are going to come out can actually create not only more anxiety in us, but also more anxiety in them. And most of it is because we think we need to be the captains of not only our world, but of theirs too. Martin Luther had a young associate named uh, Philip Melanchthon. And Philip oftentimes uh, dealt actually with worry and anxiety. And, and Luther would have this little phrase that he would say. He'd kind of touch him on the shoulder and he'd say, let Philip not rule the world. Isn't that so oftentimes the root of our anxiety? Is that I feel like I should rule the world. And when I'm out of control of my world, when I don't know what's coming next, then my anxiety peaks. Or how about this? My provision is something that also we're oftentimes anxious about. Jesus talks about food and clothing. Those can often be the things that we're worried about being provided for. Am I going to have enough to eat and to feed my family? Am I going to have a place to house my family or myself? Are we going to have enough for retirement? Are we going to have the things that we need in this world? And I love it again how Jesus is so practical in much of this. His argument is, you know what? You can try to worry. You can worry as much as you want, but guess what? It's not actually going to do any good. It's not going to add even a second to your life, Jesus says. All of your worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear, all of that worry is not actually going to change a single thing. I learned something about fog the other day, is that fog, a dense fog, right, a fog that can actually completely block all vision and you can't function, you can't really drive, a fog that covers seven blocks seven city blocks, and is 100 feet deep. So that sounds like a lot of fog. That much fog that does that much damage, if you condensed all the water, you would have about a glass of water. Isn't that amazing? Worry is like that. It blocks our vision. We feel like we can't move. It locks us up. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really amount to much. There's not really much to it. There's a, a movie called Bridge of Spies, great movie. Tom Hanks is in this movie. Uh, Steven Spielberg directed it. I'm sure some of you have seen it. It, it details really the, the interaction especially between one man who is a Russian spy and is arrested and Tom Hanks who is his attorney that's taking his case. And there's this, this one great scene in the courtroom where things are not looking good for this guy. And Hanks, his attorney, is starting to read him kind of the list of all the things that are going wrong. And this guy throughout the whole movie, he's just cool as a cucumber. He's just always calm. 
And as Tom Hanks is kind of reading this list of what's going on, and, and this guy is just sitting there calmly, it starts to bother Tom Hanks, and he, he finally kind of, kind of blows up. He says, aren't you ever worried about anything? And the guy looks back at him and he says, would it help? And it's a great question, right? He understands what Jesus says here. No, it wouldn't help. It wouldn't add even a single second to our lives. Our worries are oftentimes totally fruitless. They are simply things that wrap our, that get us all wrapped around the axle for no real reason. So here's another thing. Not only my need to know and my provision, but also my appearance before others. Jesus talks about being clothed, right, and our worry about being clothed. And his illustration about the flowers of the field is great. Really helpful in the way that we understand how we are cared for even more so than the things that God has created like flowers. But there's also something I think pretty interesting going on underneath the surface. Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, God takes care of the flowers and stop it at that. He actually goes to lengths to say they are clothed in more splendor and more beauty than even Solomon in all his glory was. And I think the reason why Jesus says that is because he knows what's oftentimes in our hearts is that we don't just want to be provided for. We want to look good being provided for. We want to look good to the people around us. We want to present ourselves as not only attractive but capable, and not only capable but maybe the most capable. We desire to present ourselves in the most perfect light. And when we do that, it actually creates anxiety in us. You know, all of the, um, all the social media platforms now have invested millions of dollars and, and, and literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of employees developing what they call augmented reality filters. And there are filters now on Instagram and on Facebook that you can go in and you can apply to a picture. And I'm not talking about just the filter that puts a little sepia kind of filter on the, on, the, on the picture so that everything looks a little bit old. I'm talking about pictures, especially for selfies, that will change the shape of your eyes or the shape of your nose or thin you out just a little bit. In fact, teenage girls have, have a term for this. It's called Instagram face. And the perfect Instagram face is big eyes, and a small nose, and big full lips, and perfectly beautiful clear skin. And so many people are taking pictures of themselves, applying filters that make them look better than they look outside of the picture. And you know what's coming, of course. All the folks that study this, all the psychologists say this is there's only going to lead us to one place. And it's first that they are going to be deeply anxious when they see actually the difference between the, projected re the projection and the reality. And second, it's either going to lead them to total cynicism and despair, or it's going to lead them to want to change those things physically about themselves in some sort of extreme way. See, when the projection of who we want to be to other people is removed from the reality of who we are, anxiety arises. Our anxiety peaks. It spikes. So let's talk about the positive. Let's flip the coin now. We've seen what causes anxiety in us. Now, how do we get rid of it? What's the cause? And again, let me remind you, Jesus is talking about long-term fixes, long-term cures. He's not talking about quick fixes. 
But what Jesus t tells us is that if we want to see our general level of anxiety decrease in our life over the long term, that the answer is that we are actually to turn our attention to him. Your, your yard may be kind of like my yard where for the most part I've got pretty nice grass, but I have patches all throughout my yard where there are just weeds. And you know, when it's in the summer and it rains and it's warm, the, re the weeds grow faster than the grass. And so, you know, my first response, my reflex response is to go and just pick all the weeds and wonder like, why are these weeds growing here? I gotta get rid of the weeds and everything will be nice, but they always just grow back. But you know, if you talk to somebody who actually knows about lawns, they'll tell you this, is that the best way to control your weeds is to make your grass better, to fertilize. And that seems counterintuitive, right? Because I think if I put fertilizer on there, then aren't my weeds gonna grow more? And the truth is, that's not the case. The grass will grow and it will actually choke out the weeds. And the same is true for us with worry. When we oftentimes just focus on those things, those things that are causing us anxiety, then, then, then it actually increases the chance that they grow in us very oftentimes. But when we focus on the grass, God's goodness, his faithfulness, his promises, it actually slowly begins to choke out the weeds. One of my favorite Singers and songwriters, Sandra McCracken, who's been here a few years ago for us, she, she wrote this beautiful piece in Christianity Today about this. I want you to just listen to these words. She said, one morning as I boarded an early flight to Florida for a music gig, my mind scrolled through the usual anxieties like old tapes on repeat. And from a west-facing window, I found myself ruminating over some troubling circumstances that were pending resolution. It was dark as we ascended through the heavy clouds. Most of the window shades were closed in the cabin. And a little time passed, and then someone on the left side of the plane opened their shade across the aisle from me. The morning sun shot a blaze of pink light across my face, and the sunlight lifted my spirits. I looked back to see the view out the west side window, and it remained predominantly dark out the west. I had been so wrapped up in my tiny scope of vision that I hadn't realized that the sun had crept over the horizon. While one side of the aircraft was glowing with light, the other side was still in the shadows. Perspective has a way of shifting our experience. On any given day, I could make a list of my anxieties, but the morning light shining on the east side of that airplane reminds me that I could just as easily make a list of the good gifts that God has given me. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has something I think very helpful, very important for us in the way that he talks about who God is. It's not just in the way that he describes God, but actually in the name that he gives God throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that he says it, and to my account, it's 16 times, at least 16 times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls God your Father or your Heavenly Father. Now, there's so many things that Jesus could have called God. He could say, my father, which he says once, but 15 other times he says either our father or your father. He could say, you know, don't worry. Look at how the creator of all things cares for the birds of the field and the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. He could have said that and it would have been very true. He could have said, look at how the judge of all the world cares for the flowers and the birds. 
He could have said, look at how the Holy One, the giver of the law, cares for the flowers and the birds. But Jesus doesn't say those things. They're all true. Those are all true descriptions and names of who God is. But when Jesus wants to talk about who God is in this context as he's calling us away from our anxieties, he says, look at how your heavenly Father cares. When he teaches us to pray, just a few verses earlier, how do we start? Our Father. Friends, that is so instructive for us that when God calls us to come to him, he does not call us to come to him simply as our creator. He does not call us to come to him simply as our judge or call us to come to us simply as the one who holds all things uh, together, as the ruler of all things, as the sovereign God of the universe. He is all of those things. But he has called us to himself as our Father. The one who not only provides, but loves. You hear what Jesus says? He says, your father knows that you need these things. Your father knows you. He knows your needs. He knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. He knows you. And guess what? Your father knows that you need them, but are you not more of value than they are? Look at how he clothes the birds of the air. Look at how he clothes the, the, the flowers of the field. And are you not of more value than they? Your heavenly father not only knows you, he values you. In fact, you are not valued by anyone more than you are valued by your heavenly father. The one who is in control of all things and sustains all things and cares for all things knows you and values you more than anyone else in this world. If you want a reason to move away from the things that so often disappoint and to move toward, as Jesus says, seeking the kingdom of God, there's your reason. Now let's talk about just briefly what that means, seeking the kingdom of God. What, what in the world does Jesus mean here? Kingdom is not a word that we oftentimes throw around, really. We don't really talk about kingdoms in our kind of world. But a kingdom really is just a sphere of our lives that, that works according to a particular set of desires and a particular set of priorities. My car is my kingdom. When I sit down in my car, I get to push a little button and my chair moves exactly into the place I want my chair to be. And on my radio, I push one, and it goes to the radio station I want it to, and two goes to another radio station I want it to. And I've got it set exactly for the bass and the treble that I want. And when some people, not to be named, but who are my children, get into my car and mess with my stuff, it makes me mad because it's my kingdom, and I need it to be exactly the way that I want it to be. And my closet's my kingdom, and all my shoes are lined up the way I want them to be. And all my shirts are organized by color, okay? I'm just being transparent here. Now you know me. My bathroom, I've got my one little drawer, and everything needs to be in its spot. And when somebody uses my brush and they don't put it back in its drawer, I get mad because it's my kingdom, right? And I need my kingdom to work according to my desires and my priorities. Jesus is telling us this. <laughs> Your kingdoms are going to leave you anxious, but when you actually move your trust to my kingdom, according to my desires and my perspective 
and to the things that I have set out as priorities, when we move ourselves into that kingdom, it actually decreases our anxiety. Friends, the best way to decrease your anxiety about the political activities of our world is to increase your desire for God's politics and his kingdom. The best way to change the anxieties you have about your relationships is to increase your desire for the kingdom of God relationships, things that look like loving your neighbor as yourself, serving rather than being served. The way that you decrease your anxiety about how your children are gonna turn out is to increase your desire and your understanding of your own sonship before the Lord. That is the way that we decrease anxiety in our lives is that we conform ourselves to God's kingdom desires and priorities. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, I'm almost finished. One last thing. And we're kind of going back maybe even to something we had talked about before. And it's really this question. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, that's great. You know, preacher, all these things are great, awesome. But what if I still deal with anxiety? What if I'm still anxious? Well, here's the thing. Is what Jesus is saying here going to always remove anxiety from us? I don't think it is. In fact, I'm not even sure Jesus wants us to be completely clear of all worry and anxiety. He just wants us to be able to deal with it the proper way. In fact, if you fast forward through the book of Matthew, you find Jesus actually dealing with some similar things. After Jesus has left his disciples, provided for them, the Last Supper, he's going, he knows he's going to be betrayed, he knows he's going to be crucified, and he takes a couple of his disciples out to pray. And as he is praying, this is what Matthew tells us in, in Matthew 26. Listen to these words. So Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is troubled. Luke tells us that he, that, that he sweat like drops of blood. That's pretty anxious. He's dealing with some heavy stuff. But what does Jesus do with his anxiety? He brings it to the place that we are called to bring ours as well. Before the Lord, to be able to say, Lord, it is your kingdom. It is your will. It is your desires. It is your priorities that are the place that I will find my own desires, my healing. And friends, of course, this is not just the example for us. It's truly our hope, isn't it? It's because Jesus laid down his own desires and conformed himself to the will of his Father that you and I can stand here and celebrate the grace that we have been given. It's because Jesus did not actually worry about being clothed any better than the flowers of the field or the birds of the air that you and I can stand here and celebrate that we have been clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. It's because Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father because Jesus sought first the kingdom of God that you and I can stand up here and say we've been forgiven, we've been cleansed, we've been loved with the blood of Christ. And it's the reason why we can then turn our hearts to that Christ and that heavenly Father who loves us. Let's pray that he enable us to do that even now.
Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, such good words to put on our lips, to remind ourselves of your care and your concern, your, that you know us, that you value us, that you've given yourself for us. Lord, will you even, even little by little, day by day, chip away at our anxieties, chip away at the things that, that tug at our hearts that are only going to leave us like salt water, thirstier, Chip away at the idols that we are oftentimes drawn to, Lord, that actually increase our anxiety and draw us, Lord, to your provision, your care. Let us seek your kingdom and your kingdom only. We pray that in the name of Christ. Amen.